Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we talk with professional lacrosse player and co-founder of Rabel Ventures, Paul Rabel. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. And let's start with the NFL. The owners just wrapped up a meeting in Atlanta And they're still talking about the NFL and the big issue of the national anthem policy. Yeah, that was the problem for the owners, that people were still talking about this, and they fear the president tweeting about it when next season starts. They just want this off the table. However, it seems to, what they have done, and I'm going to use a football phrase here, it seems they've punted, (laughs) because I'm not sure this solves anything. In essence... If players don't want to stand for the anthem, they can stay in the locker room. But if anybody does come out and kneel, then the team will be fined and that they can take any disciplinary action against the player. It didn't take long for the union to already come out and say, well, they didn't consult us and we're not so happy with this and we'll see if anything violates the CBA. So once again, the player-management relationship shows that it's fractured and it just seems that it didn't solve anything. So what happens if a player comes out and raises a fist? Is that the same as kneeling? Is that finable? Is that It just doesn't solve the issue. I think one thing this is going to create is a very clear delineation of where each individual owner stands on this. I would imagine that we're going to see some owners come out there and say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to pay that fine for whatever player wants to kneel. And there are certainly owners out there who are not going to say that. And that little option that says the teams can take their own individual uh, punishment, again, we, we may see, as Scott said, other forms of protest out there by players. And we will see very quickly which owners out there are willing to allow their players that voice uh, and to make that, that show and, and which owners are not. They said it was unanimous. I wonder if that happens, the David Tepper vote. Is that before or after he's approved? I also, I mean, unanimous, as you know, Scott, in these owners' meetings, often doesn't mean unanimous. Often the vote happens, and then uh, they decide that it will be unanimous. By the way, speaking of the NFL, there's a marriage involving fanatics. There is, yes. A new deal between Nike, Fanatics, and the NFL, uh, similar to what baseball is doing with with Under Armour and Fanatics starting next year. Uh, Nike will continue to make the jerseys, everything players wear on the field, the base layers, the sideline stuff, that's all going to be made by Nike. Everything else will be made by Fanatics and distributed by Fanatics with the Nike logo. So anything that you buy, anything you buy for your kids, for your wife, etc., that will all be made by Fanatics moving forward. You have to wonder, though, is that a risk for Nike? I know they had problems with like NBA jerseys ripping and things, but if I'm Nike, am I okay with Fanatics producing something that will have my logo on? I mean, obviously they are, but it seems like there's some sort of risk being taken by Nike because they're not making the product. Yeah, and this is a part of Fanatics' business as well. I mean, the one thing that it does let Nike do is it lets Nike take, I mean, take advantage of what Fanatics does so well. Fast, fast, you know, fast. That is fast, fast, fast. If you know the third-string quarterback has a huge game and becomes a breakout star, you can buy that jersey before the game ends. Fanatics has blanks that they will put a name on it, a number on it, and ship it to you the next day. Uh, that is a capability that Nike necessarily 
hasn't been able to utilize uh, in the years past with their NFL deal. So this gives Nike the ability to service fans in a much better way by handing off a lot of the fan apparel to fans. I am to so fascinated, Eben, by, I think you wrote it, sort of the emotional response time that goes into this. So what, what are the analytics and the study that goes into how long do you have for that euphoria of a moment before you come back down to earth and say, you know, I don't really need that jersey, I don't really need that hat, that in the moment you hit buy, and that's what they're looking to capture. Yeah, they so call them they call them hot moments, you know, and it's and it is that moment right after the game ends, right after your team wins uh, a playoff game, when after they win the, the conference championship, uh, where you're so amped up on emotion, you have your phone sitting in front of you, you're willing to make a purchase that who knows, maybe two or three days later, if you had to wait and go to the the local brick and mortar store when they finally had them in stock, that you might not make. Um, so yeah, there's there there's a there's a moment there where you're more likely to make a purchase, um, and and fanatics has a very real ability to tap into that moment, both from a speed perspective and from an options perspective. This will probably expand the list of things that Nike has the ability to sell to NFL fans. I'm, put, I'm putting Eben on notice. He has to book Michael Rubin for the show. <laughs> we, we need Michael Rubin. We need to talk about all this with Michael, because it's we, absolutely We will have the Fanatics chairman on soon. There we go. By the way, another major story, and we know why this marriage is taking place. FanDuel, Patty Power. Gee, I wonder what ruling caused this. We've talked a lot about gambling over the past week or so. This is the first major acquisition that has happened kind of as a direct result of the U.S. Supreme Court saying that states are now allowed to uh, to legalize sports gambling. Patty Power Betfair, the, the, the U.K. giant, has merged its U.S. operations with FanDuel. Uh, our colleague Chris Palmieri reporting that the, the combined entity is worth over a billion dollars, which wow. if you break out the shares, probably prices FanDuel around $400 million, uh, which shows you... Uh, kind of where the DFS, Daily Fantasy World, has kind of fallen. I mean, these companies were worth a billion dollars over a couple years ago at at their highest moment. Um, But yeah, this this creates an easy entry point into the U.S. market for a company, Patty Power Betfair, that that does this uh, very well over in the U.K. and lets them leverage FanDuel's uh, client base. And that's big for these companies in the U.K. because there was just a recent ruling where their slot machines, if you want to call it that, where the machines, they took down the the wager amount, and that was killing like William Hill and and other companies like this. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a, a UK company, I mean, regardless of what's happening in the UK, the US is a much bigger market than than, than all of England. Um, it is potentially the biggest legal market in the world if, if enough states can come on board and regulate it. Uh, certainly, Patty Power Betfair, you look at that market and you say, hey, I need to get into that. And there is a debate about how you do that. And their approach certainly seems as though they're going with a daily fantasy company that is kind of well-positioned uh, for, for advertising games and creating games uh, that are millennial-focused, that are digital, that are online, uh, doing so in states that, that a lot of casino-based companies in the U.S. aren't operating in. Uh, it makes sense for uh, for Patty Power. I can imagine this won't be the last type of merger like this. And now I'm excited. You know why? This Sunday, I'm a, as we all know, I'm a big racing fan. There are two days that are very important. There's the Daytona 500. And this Sunday, we have the triple header. As everybody shakes their heads. We we have the Grand Prix of Monaco, 
that starts. That's the first race. Then we have the Indianapolis 500. And then we have the Coca-Cola 600 NASCAR. I'm telling you, I've already told my family, don't bug me on Sunday. I've heard of two of those events. The Coca-Cola 600, I, I'm not familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I, I, really I don't, ima- I don't it. imagine it's hard for Barr's family to be convinced to stay away from him. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, that's not <laughs> too hard. Wait, so is this like the Super Bowl for, for car racing if you, fans if in the you are, If you just want to trash out on auto racing, this is the weekend. Yeah, again, three of them. And by the way, I should add this for the Indy 500. Ed Carpenter is on the pole Danica Patrick running seventh. But what's important, Ed Carpenter busted off a lap in qualifying 230 miles an hour a lap. I, I mean, I, I can't even imagine that. Scott, is there a mile an hour he could have given there that, that would have meant anything to you? <laughs> I, Fast or slow? I, I have told Michael Barr the extent of my auto racing knowledge was fulfilled in the movie Cars. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it next week. Our thanks to Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Novi williams Now let's get into this week's interview, Scott. You got it, Mr. Barr. He is a professional lacrosse player with the New York Lizards of Major League Lacrosse, plays for Team USA, co-founder of Rabel Ventures, and he hosts his own podcast called Suiting Up. Paul Rabel, thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Now, oh, good, good. And I'm a big fan of your show. We should tell everybody that yes. you had me on your show, Suiting Up, a while back, and we were looking for some reciprocity. So, thank you very much. Here we are. This is this is definitely the payback, and we're we're happy to have you. How did you like the intro, a lacrosse player, entrepreneur? How do you describe yourself? It does athlete come yeah. first because it, it all stems from there. But how do you like to describe yourself? Yeah, that well, the latter is right. So athlete comes first, and I think even beyond the days of playing for me is is the entrance to more opportunity, be it in entrepreneurship and operating, to investing, to philanthropy, comes through that vehicle of sport where I've been able to, as an athlete over the past 10 years, leverage new media to build a connection with an audience that previously was reserved for uh, linear media that would talk about specific players, examples now, LeBron James and company getting all the coverage for the NBA, like very rarely do lacrosse athletes or other niche team sport athletes get the linear coverage. So at the advent of new media, we were given an opportunity to create our own conversation. And I've been long on that for the past 10 years. And then from that comes opportunity. But to your question, I am actively looking for uh, a great communications team that can help me coalesce the mouthful, as you mentioned, and explain more succinctly what it is I do. But I like the fact that you said we were given the opportunity Everybody, yeah. and we say we, you're, you talked about all in this sports athletes, as well as big stick and ball athletes, given the opportunity, yet not everyone has seemingly taken advantage of it. Do you still think that they don't quite get the opportunities that are available? I know LeBron does and his team. I know you do, but I know a lot don't. Do you see it that way also? Yeah, absolutely, because... I think what we're talking about here is, is influencer marketing and, and storytelling and leveraging these platforms uh, that Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, um, even Amazon and Apple to a degree are offering through uh, original programming, but, but more so content creation through those vessels that we can just sign up and start. So the, the, the challenge is that um, it is a part-time, in many cases, full-time gig. Scott, I remember us talking about this 
half a dozen years ago and how many companies were struggling with putting out a job description in the marketplace for a social media manager. Now it's like, you know, your social team and it's a challenge to find the right talent because they're so highly sought after. Um, for athletes to create content, it's no easier than a business investing meaningful dollars into a team to create. Uh, so it's difficult. You have to have a level of creative skill set. You have to understand content creation, whether that's the right equipment to use, know how to take it through posts, because at the same time, the audience, which has now grown up in these like digital native Gen Zs, this is all they know. Their expectations are much higher than when you and I were first introduced to social media and kind of like the novelty of being able to follow LeBron James to continue to use him as an example was like worth the click alone. Now the consumer is much more, uh, they're much more uh, maybe in need of, of, of uh, hey, convince me to follow you. So there's a difficulty of it. And the other thing is for athletes specifically is you can't really outsource it or have yet to find anyone who's done that well because authenticity is so transparent. You can see right so, through it. Yeah, you can see right through it. Exactly. So it, the, 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 the truth of it is it just requires a lot of time and, uh, and in some cases investment into a team that can help you create. I have to ask for some tips, as you mentioned, about social media. I, I just started a Twitter account. I think, what, 58 followers I have right now? Yeah, we like to say bars on the Insta, the Insta snap. Well, <laughs> I, I just followed you, too. I yeah, he's a follower. Oh, 59. Yeah. 59. <laughs> Ooh, he's going to give away a prize at 65. <laughs> this is, uh, you know. That this... is a good way to grow your followers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you give, you give away sticks and things, don't you, Paul? <laughs> on, a, on occasion, although that gets seen through these days, too. I'm giving away pads of paper. That's about it right now. I, I, but that's big. I mean, Twitter obviously is is something that has taken off, and it's a way to grow a business, a way to grow your brand. Uh, take us through the steps on on tips on what to do to expand. Stop, hold on, Paul. Media. Stop the presses. Medina has just handed me her phone to Twitter to Michael Barr at Big Bar Sports. Big Bar Sports. Sixty-seven followers. Oh, he's growing. He's Cousin growing like John fire. joined in. What, what is it the kids say? Blowing up. <laughs> blowing up. That's right. <laughs> Bar is blowing up. There you go. I'm not good at math, but I know that Twitter has 336 million monthly active users so you're chipping away at that total headcount right little now. by the little i got it <laughs> yeah, i, wanna, I yeah. gotta see the average demo for michael bar for big bar sports that's what i wanted to know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i think uh i, I think to, to your question the, the first piece is is always worth uh taking into account and it's like what what is your goal so a lot of brands, they want to build an audience or they want to grow their followers. So there are specific strategies into hacking that where they could do that. But for the case of, of you, and I would even put myself in the same bucket and Scott the same, and I know Scott and I have had these conversations before, uh, but think for Twitter, what, what makes it such a unique platform is it's very conversational and it's immediate um, and, and it and it bodes really well with uh, news and sports. So people are finding, uh, you know, the, the, the first-time news and reaction to highlights and games on Twitter quicker than they will the traditional media and that even, like, going online and, and finding, uh, finding insights. So 
My suggestion, and I, I know you're headed this direction, but given all of your expertise in sports and business, my advice to you specifically, and use this as an example, would be to continue to post about uh, what you guys are, are pushing out, what you're finding, and, and how you're interpreting the latest news in sports and business. And that's really unique to hear it from a, a voice, a personality that people know. So you're, you're accomplishing two things. You're, you're getting news, and then you're also getting the, you know, your reaction to that. So that would be how I would position you. And, and I, I think I use that as an example because we can all take, you know, what are we good at? What, are, what, what do we care about? And let's uh, create a conversation around that. Then the second piece is understanding um, what your cadence should be and or what your audience, how often your audience wants to hear from you. So I think one of the biggest mistakes that athletes and even influencers, entertainers, uh, make on social media is that it's easy to get in, it's easy to start, but it's very difficult to continue to keep up the, the proper cadence and the conversation. It requires a lot of endurance. And this isn't, by the way, like a seasonal or monthly or annual thing. Like this is for the foreseeable long-term future, this is where communication lives. So if you're going to get into Twitter, if you're going to be on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Come up with a real strategy and commit to it for as long as, as you want to be active and, and continue to, to tell the story through your lens. Paul Rabel is an American professional lacrosse player with the New York Lizards of Major League Lacrosse. Thank you for the tips because this is going to – I have to learn, first of all, how to tweet a handle. Because I would just uh, type out, I know, yeah, yeah this uh, is, I would just say yeah. Scott Soshnick and Evan Novi Williams. Yeah, he'd spell out our names. And he I didn't spell use our Twitter names. handles. And I had to tell him how to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, well, we can get, like, super into the granularity of, of what it becomes shareable content versus not. And sometimes tagging too much into one tweet turns people off, and it's less likely to be shared. So I know it sounds really nuanced, but... There may be a case where, hey, you have a tweet that you think will get shared, and by shared, a number of retweets and likes and commentary. And we're finding more as these platforms continue to update their algorithms that uh, they look at engagement. So engagement is how quickly can you get people to comment and retweet and like. If, if you're able to ramp that up inside of, say, the first half hour of posting, you're more, more likely to show up at the top of everyone's news feed. So it's one of those the rich get richer type of deal. So if you can create content that's more likely to be shared, it's going to really take off and you're going to approach virality. So one thing that these algorithms kind of flag is if there is more than, a, you know, you have a link, you have a couple of tags, they're less likely to promote that on people's news feeds because it, it feels like, um, you know, it feels too uh, kind of too edgy, too sherry, uh, too promotey. I can tell you, Paul Rabel, the one thing he does is his homework. And if you listen, you can tell Yeah, he, he has a plan. But, Paul, you, you, I, I get too excited about this. No, thing. no, it's, it's, it's good. But you, you wish more athletes would get excited and do it well and do it right to achieve their goals. You used the, the yeah. term brand earlier. And we're not yeah. talking Coca-Cola here. We're talking athletes as brands. And in a conversation I had with David Falk not long ago, He's like, there are no brands. Like, Michael Jordan was a brand. I would argue right. you do have a brand. He said LeBron is a brand. Who out there, besides LeBron, because we keep saying LeBron because he does it so well, who's a brand? Who's doing it well? Who is doing themselves proud on social media and creating the sort of awareness that most athletes are hoping to create? 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a great question. I, I had that conversation with David Falk, and and obviously one of the the great agents, and had uh, really pioneered on a number of levels with Michael Jordan and relationships with Nike and Gatorade and McDonald's. So uh, it's it, I can imagine it's tough from his perspective, seeing that you know the the mega brand and MJ, and then everyone else using the same um, lexicon and by association, uh, him making comments like, "Oh, there's no brands out there," but. I think it's in the eye of the holder. It's a subjective thing for him to say. Um, you know, I, I think when we look at brand, it's, it's how are you telling your story to the marketplace, the conversation that you're having with the audience, what mediums are you on, and and how and, and kind of what's your long term strategy, where your goals. So, athletes that I think are, are doing it well. We've talked about LeBron. I think Steph is doing a really good job, but he's doing a good job through strategic partnerships. So they just cut that deal. Um, with Sony to help him kind of build out a YouTube channel. I know they're looking at audio uh, in a similar vein in the NBA. Kevin Durant and Rich Kleinman and his team work with the Players Tribune, and they actually work with their sponsors, too, to help underwrite uh, production costs to help building out better social media for Kevin. That's and To I your point, that, that it takes a team to do it. It takes a lot of it, investment, sometimes capital, but certainly the time and energy. Exactly, and I think that for athletes, and I know a lot listen to this show, is try to think outside of the box. It doesn't have to be necessarily self-funded or coming from you. Now, ideally, you, you know, like I said, the authenticity is a big piece, so you have to be a part of the process and ideally be in the assets and participate in the copywriting because people know your voice from press conferences and they'll be able to uh, see through it if it's not. But think about your brand sponsorships and – you know, I know for the most part, contracts that we're seeing now in, uh, in sports business are less around these three- to five-year term trade for image and likeness in return, compensation, and product. They're now shortening the term, looking at branded content, uh, prerequisite is that athlete or entertainer is active on social media and included in the contract or a certain amount of posts with that company's tag in the post. So it's becoming really granular. You know, kind of the double-edged sword of, of new media and athletes being able to create and build an audience. Athletes are becoming more valuable, but brands now are expecting an, an ROI to their investment, where previously it was, like, powerful enough to have alignment with an athlete and you get that player endorsement. Now they want to see an actual return because as technology has gotten better, they can give you promo codes and can track the, the conversion from your tweet and see how many pairs of shoes are being purchased. So yeah, that's what I was going to say, Paul. Def- the ROI is more tangible these days in the platforms we're talking about. Exactly. And you guys see it with the podcast. And, and I know uh, Bloomberg has a sales team, and you know that, that, that this like, is a part of a number of other um, portfolio properties that you have. But with a podcast, for example, is like we, we sell ads on a, on a download basis. So a brand will come in and they'll give you a, a cost per view. In our case, a, a cost per download. And if you if you have if your if your podcast does great, that particular show, and you get a ton of downloads, then you get paid more from the brand. And then you negotiate behind the scenes on okay, what is the likelihood of conversion? Is it a quarter of a percent? Is it half of a percent? And then they work their way up to okay, what can we pay based on that conversion per download? So is the next frontier so, then having more data on the listeners, knowing exactly who you're reaching? 100, percent and that's where audio is slightly behind. I know the folks at Apple are are really working hard to figure that out, and Steve Wilson and company, and and what they look at as as I think the forefront of the big four 
um, kind of monopolistic technology platforms is uh, privacy, and and they're maintaining that. Um, and so there's that tricky balance. But if you look at Google, who also does a pretty good job, and then the group that obviously is being highlighted right now in Facebook, uh, and then you have Twitter, they have pretty robust analytics that they give to uh, influencers and athletes. So give me an example, Scott, is like, I'll, cut a, I'll, I'll do a, a branded content campaign with avocados from Mexico, and then after I push out my Instagram and, and YouTube video, they then ask for me to send a screenshot of the analytics on performance of those posts. Um, and then we decide, okay, did this meet expectations? Did it exceed it? If it didn't, we can actually spend and paid media behind it to get it there. Um, and if it did exceed it, let's do another campaign. So it's like super driven by analytics right now. Hey, Bar, look at the analytics for avocados from Mexico. That is a self-fulfilling prophecy for Paul Rabel because you have one of those Chipotle cards where you're an influencer. <laughs> you get to walk into any Chipotle anytime you want and get whatever you want without without cashing in. So all you need to do is go in and have, what are you, 200, 64, 220? Give me, give me my three burritos with avocado. Yeah, yeah. And, and the order's good. Getting, they're, yeah, they're reordering yeah. avocado. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I started following more LeBron James fodder for everyone. I started uh, following his diet. He's ketogenic, and uh, I realized that I actually needed carbohydrates in, uh, more than him based on blood sensitivity testing that I had done this offseason. And, uh, and saturated fats were identified as the best source of fuel for me in the early stages of a game. So avocados, uh, a, a real authentic call out to come full circle. Now we'll see. Now we're going to give you the analytics from this show as to what what we got on avocados. Yeah, it's well, it involves a Big Mac, man. <laughs> There's no, no problem. <laughs> we're talking with American professional lacrosse player, Paul Rabel, and I have to play the what if game just for fun. And we've been talking about social media and all this. What if, an athlete as big as Muhammad Ali was, what if he had Twitter today? How big would he be? That, that's a fantastic question because I, I've heard it before with Michael Jordan, and and to you know to to be just fully candid, you know a lot of folks will say that 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 know Michael and David Falk actually said this he, he wouldn't have been on social. Uh, the other thing was like. The benefit of Michael Jordan and some of the mishaps that he had as a career professional and, and gambling and going out late nights is that there was always a delay in traditional journalism in covering that. Now with the mobile device and someone being able to just take it out and take a picture, think kind of like the Johnny Manziel uh, era of like getting caught in bathrooms and, and doing things like that. Like with Michael Jordan around, uh, that would have been an entirely different um, challenge for him potentially again like spending late nights at casinos and golfing all day uh, he may have changed his entire rhythm as a person with Muhammad Ali I've never heard that question but what, what interests me is that like he's you know he was one of the fastest talkers ever in sports so I would have loved to have uh, to have followed him and seen that ongoing trash talk on Twitter which is primarily uh, a text-based platform um, I think those guys in particular, we can look at, let's see, Tiger Woods a couple of years ago, Kobe Bryant a couple of years ago, Tom Brady a year ago, getting on these social platforms, immediately getting 5 to 10 million followers. Uh, and that's mostly because of their fame, uh, but also because these social media platforms have sports-specific teams 
that are working on them. You have Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. And so when they onboard new talent, it's in the platform's best interest that that talent builds an audience and it, and it gets excited and more likely to post. That drives more attention to their platform. Uh, so they would get behind a Tom Brady, too. And the last point I'll say about it is, is look how powerful a celebrity like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, and then even Kylie Jenner is, who makes a tweet that she's no longer going to use Snapchat. Yeah, and Snapchat falls X percent. Millions yeah. of dollars, right? Yeah. So it's, it's those two. That, you know, Muhammad Ali is an example. Would would have been. Uh, not only an enjoyable follower for me, but I think really powerful for all those platforms. So look, look out, Jack Dorsey. You better be nice to Michael Barr. Once again, big <laughs> bar sports, because he'll take your stock price down with one one little thumb movement. That's it. I'm not on Twitter. That's it. I hate it. I'm not using it. Look out, Jack Dorsey. We're talking to Paul Rabel. Paul, for the few minutes we have left, let me talk about lacrosse a little bit. You're the face yeah. of the game. The game itself. Will it, can it emerge from niche status in a world where everybody's thirsting for live content and people need things to show, perhaps lacrosse, with a great demo, by the way, young, affluent audiences, can it penetrate further? Yeah. Thanks for teeing that up. And I think it goes back to our original comment around sport being my platform and lacrosse specifically being the vehicle that I've and fortunate enough to, to not only play in, but also build properties from and media from. The game has been the only team sport in North America over the past 15 years to grow year over year at a participatory level. There's 2 million players now, and that's according to U.S. Lacrosse and Inside Lacrosse media surveys. There's 6 million fans. Uh, Ten years ago, there were nine uh, governed uh, international bodies that were playing. Now there are 58. We have a World Championships in Israel this July. Uh, Jim Schur, who was the former CEO of the USOC, is now the CEO of the Federation of International Lacrosse, and he completed a bid to get IOC recognition, hopefully hearing that by this year. The long game of that would be probably 2028 in LA, at best a participatory platform in 2024. But even before that, what's so powerful about Olympic recognition is that unlocks access to resources on an international level for all participatory countries in the Olympics to get sponsor and, and fund resources on a pro rata basis per the other recognized teams that are competing in the Olympics. So right now, of the 58 participatory countries, all of us are self-funded. Now, some of us have U.S. Lacrosse and the Canadian Lacrosse Association that do a better job of fundraising because lacrosse is Canada's national sport, and we have kind of mass adoption in the U.S., but Uganda, France, England, um, Italy, Australia, they'll all of a sudden get access to resources which we think will help grow the game internationally. So there's a big pop there at a participatory level. You mentioned the, the power of live rights, right? Television and cable, we're seeing a ton of M&A to try to compete with the entrance of uh, the, 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 the massive digital platforms, Google, Amazon, Facebook, because um, uh, all these and, young and so kids, that, so all these young kids are very comfortable on their phones. They don't need to watch it on TV. They they would pull up ESPN Plus. This is exactly the core audience yeah. that that yeah. signs up for ESPN Plus or some of these other networks. A hundred percent. And the reason why they're bidding on sports rights is that seventy five percent of live programming right now on television is sports. 
The other is Oscars, the Academy Awards, NCIS, and the Big Bang Theory. Like, this, like sports programming is the last standing firewall that's live. And if you want to be in the advertising business, you got to get eyeballs on live television or even live mobile screens. So everything else is VOD. Netflix is spending, HBO, all these groups are spending, and there's no advertising there. We're, we're able to pay a, a subscription tax to not be served ads. So sports have become more, more uh, important and more valuable, and that's why rights are going up. WWE just had a huge contract. UFC just had a huge contract. But the value proposition for lacrosse right now, and even DRL, World Surf League, PBR ongoing, is that because of new tech and new media, access to new audiences, if we commercialize properly, we can get a piece of that market share because there's unlimited inventory now, right? Like YouTube TV can create a channel for pro lacrosse. Amazon TV can create a channel. There's no longer a fixed set of inventory that you had to plug in on ESPN, where previously lacrosse a decade ago was on ESPN2, but it was in a tape delay at a 10 or 11 o'clock hour. That's all wiped off the surface. So, so the opportunities there from a viewership and media standpoint. And then with new technology lowering the cost of production, we no longer have to spend half a million dollars a game like the NFL does, and the MLS is spending 50K a game. So there's ways from a, from a cost experimentation standpoint to an opportunity through the networks to really get more eyeballs on the sport that can help grow it at a commercial level. And you guys know if you're on massive media platforms, that's how you get non-endemic sponsors. Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player. We have to wrap this up, but I have to ask, and this might be a sore spot, what happened to Johns Hopkins? They did not make the Final Four. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That that was great. By the way, as a Syracuse (laughs) alum, at Cornell, oh, come on, too close, no yeah. good, no good. Yeah. But on the, yeah. is it a good yeah. thing though? We got Albany. I mean, this is good. New blood, good for the sport. New new blood is good for the sport, and and kind of validating the point in growth and participation is that for you know the past two decades, you could probably have you know four guesses at who would be the final four teams and get two of the four right almost every year. Yeah, Syracuse and uh, Hopkins. At one point. At one point, Syracuse had 22 straight years of making the Final Four. So it, it, it's, I don't think it's a, you know, a, a, a problem at Hopkins. I, I think really highly of Dave Petromalo, who was the coach when I was there. He's the only National Player of the Year, National Coach of the Year, won a national championship as a player, won a national championship as a coach. So what he's done at that program has been unbelievable, and they won the Big Ten this year. I just think it's really hard to get to the Final Four and, and, and to a degree, that, that's what's so admiring, admirable about uh, John Tillman and, and what they've done at Maryland as they continue to get back there. But a, uh, a tough code to crack. Paul will make a great meme. I love the answer. Yes, Albany's the best, and they won. Yeah. Blah, well, blah, Scott Barr, who's the head coach <laughs> of Albany, is a Johns Hopkins grad. So we're, like, sort of in there. We have a horse in the race. Stop <laughs> shilling for the alma mater, Rabel. <laughs> Paul Rabel, American pro lacrosse player with the New York Lizards of Major League Lacrosse. Thank you so much for talking with us, sir. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Takeaways? Well, you know what my takeaway is. I am learning Twitter, and I got great tips from Paul on what to do. But that, my little thing, carries over 
for people who really want to start their brand and and grow, and that's just for anybody. Medina, he's learned nothing. Nothing. <laughs> How do you say my takeaway is I've learned from Paul and not mention Big Bar Sports at Big Bar Sports? If you haven't heard, once again, I'm learning. Just follow Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I won't do what I did earlier this week by simply tweeting out you guys' names. Thank you. Now you know use the handle. Yes, I have to use the handle. At Soshnik at Novi underscore Williams. That's right. I All have right. to learn that. All right, you got it. My takeaway is Paul gets it. Yes. Now, a little does. unfair. I've known Paul a long time. He and I are pals. But to watch the evolution of Paul Rabel and to watch what he's created, I know the time and effort he puts into it. Could you imagine if Paul was an NFL star? and had sort of promotion of the NFL behind him and creating the sort of content he does. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the YouTube st- stuff he does. Like he chose to th- tries to throw the lacrosse ball across the Boston or the uh, the Baltimore Harbor. Yep. Like he does stuff engaging stuff that you want to watch that appeals to his core fan base and perhaps some folks who are not core lacrosse fans that can touch the sport. You want to see what's next. You want to see what he's about. That's how people become ambassadors for their sport, for their sponsors, and create opportunities for themselves. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week might be a little tough. Seven. Outside of George Costanza wanting to name his kid Seven. Um, no. Outside of Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, Seven. You know, Mickey Mantle, I, I, that's all I got. Seven. That's where Danica Patrick uh, I qualified. Known. I should have known. For her final Indy 500, her final race. Right. This is this is it. Is that good or bad? I, there's a debate if she should be in the Hall of Fame, uh, and she knocked down a lot of. It can't just be about hurdles. race results. It can't just for what no, she's no, done no. for the yeah, sport. Yeah, th- that's what this is. But this isn't about. Uh, I mean, yes, God bless. I mean, she didn't win a NASCAR race, but. What she has done for the sport for women. What did she win in Asia? If I may just interject quickly, she, she won one in, race in Japan, Asia. Right? Yeah. Japan. That, that's Asia. That, yeah. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> yes, Asia. Yeah, that's it. It uh... was that. Wasn't that a NASCAR race? No. Oh, no, it was Indy race. That was Indy race. Okay. Yeah, that was Indy race. Okay. But I mean, it's and and, see, and people always try to poo-poo that, which I think is wrong. They will have to feel didn't come well, and blah, blah, yeah, blah. I, no, she see, won the race. Let me see if you agree with me on this one, Bar. I've always said, you know when people made fun of uh, Anna Kornikova? Yeah. That she was yeah. just a pretty face and she gets the endorsements for this. Like, Anna Kornikova reached the top of her profession. She might That's not right. have won Wimbledon, but... She still was a professional tennis player, a ranked professional tennis player, playing against the best in the world. Since when is that not accomplishment enough? You know how many racing drivers, male racing drivers, would scream to get 
to where Danica got yeah, for the I'm exposure. Yeah. I mean, that that's doing something. Right. And she drove. And it wasn't given to her. No, no. And when she drove for Tony Stewart, uh, I mean, that she had to work at it. And and uh, so hats off to you, Danica Patrick. Number seven, she'll be on the inside of row three for Sunday's Indy 500. It'd be great if she won. Oh, man. Be great. Can you imagine if she won the race? No, but it'd be great if she won. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Is she doing GoDaddy? Is it a GoDaddy car for the way out? Uh, so I think it's the GoDaddy car. She's driving for uh, Ed Carpenter. I don't know what that means, but okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.